Very good afternoon. I am absolutely delighted to be spending the next half an hour with Casper uh, Berry, where we we're going to be talking about uh, risk taking. This is a guy who spoke at a TED talk on the uh, risk taking decision making in uncertain times. And that was two years ago. The world's a lot more uncertain now. Um, we've had him along to speak to our member. He is a very in demand speaker, motivational speaker, but actually the science of what he talks about in terms of risk, um, proactiveness, decision making and to make the right decisions is absolute uh, genius so uh, enjoy Casper. Casper Berry, very very good afternoon very good to see you. Um, we last saw you 18 months ago when you came and spoke at the Recruitment Network event in a swimming pool in a nightclub near Covent Garden. Which is, fantastic. Is, that long ago? is it 18 months? It is that long, it is that long ago. Okay. <laughs> it's that long ago. Um, so uh, it's very good to see you back. And we had a, had a great session, had some amazing feedback. Uh, and we were talking about risk and decision making. Uh, and um, really interested, obviously, from somebody who did a you did a TED talk a couple of years ago about risk in, uh, in these uncertain times and, and uh, looking back, they feel a little bit more certain those times back then than the times we're in, we're, we're in now. Um, so we're, we're, we're... Sorry, so, I'm going to no, no, no. say, except that they probably weren't. Uh, Warren Buffett says a good thing, right? He says, your money was no safer in the bank in March 2008 than it was in November 2008. It's just that you didn't know that it was unsafe. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, which, yeah. which sort of plays to my point that a lot of certainty is an illusion. Do you know what I mean? Not knowing what's around the next corner is fine if we don't anticipate it being anything bad. What yeah. happens when the banks collapse or the world falls into a pandemic is that someone shines a light into the cupboard under the stairs marked uncertainty and we realise that it's there, but it's always there. Mm. Yeah. Okay. So, so, um, in our world, our members have been, uh, since it, since lockdown came, they've been getting a little bit uh, uh, defensive, making sure the ship's in order, uh, tightening things up, uh, spent, not spending cash where they didn't need to, and then flipped it into a more offensive play to start looking at where are the opportunities, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and I'm really interested with your, with your sort of specialism and your experience, going through this journey of where we're at now, knowing the, 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 Economic impact is going to be pretty hard. It's going to be very tough on the jobs market, which obviously affects all our, all our members in the recruitment sector. Um, this, this, this kind of concept of, of offensive versus defensive, is, is that a way that, with your expertise in, in risk and, and decision-making, is that a way that you look at it, or is it, or is it slightly more subtle than that? It is, but let me, let me refer it back, actually, to the, to the point I just made there, really interrupting you, which is that I think that should always be the strategy. Okay, so again, let's just make it really explicit. I think that all times are uncertain. And what happens is every now and again, something happens to make us realize that. Okay, but obviously, December was massively uncertain. We didn't feel uncertain, but all the plans that we were making in December were going to go pop, right? It's just that we didn't realize it until March the 10th. Okay, so um, so my point would be that the way that people are running their business now is the way that they should always run their business in a way that they should be more defensive and they should be more offensive okay. uh, to use your lingo that is to say so here's what i mean by that if you remember from my presentation i talked about um 
Tetlock study that shows how bad most experts were at predicting the future. Okay, and so what that shows is that the thing that most of the experts thought was most likely to happen was actually not as likely as they thought it was. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We can all make, we can all make predictions of the future. So what, who would you say is going to win the American presidency now? You'd say Joe Biden, yeah. right? Yeah. But it could be Kanye West, <laughs> all right? And don't, don't, don't discount that, because that's as mad as saying Donald Trump yeah. in, in March, April uh, uh, 2015. That's as mad as that. That is as mad as that was. I remember, there's a, you can look at it on YouTube, there's a CNN conversation in which one of the guys says, you know, don't discount Donald Trump winning the primary, and he's laughed off the table, okay? Mm. But you'd say it's Joe Biden, all right? Yeah. You're probably going to be right. Like, it's, it's like backing the favourite horse. That is the most likely thing to happen. But if you had to put a probability on it, would it be as likely as you think it is? And I would say no. And right now, because of upsets like Donald Trump and Brexit recently, people are so wary of the polls. Like, if, this was the, if these were the, 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 um, the poll results in, in, you know, 2004, no one would be caveating it. Do you know what I mean? Everyone would say Joe Biden's a dead, dead favourite. Now, so what this means is we all talked about flattening the curve in the last, uh, the last few months. So this is, a, this is a curve. I don't have any slides here with me now. We're going to flatten this curve. Okay, this is not, this is not the COVID-19 cases. This is the standard Gaussian bell curve. Okay, and the peak here are the things that are most likely. These are ordinary events, right? Yeah. And these events are very bad. Okay, and these events are very good, but they're, they're less likely, okay, than the thing in between. But what happens is if these things up here are less likely, than experts and general public think there. If they come down, then these things go up because that likely has got to go somewhere, right? Yeah. My argument, which is not necessarily clear the last time I spoke to you because I'm only focusing on the upside, right? I'm only saying, at that point, I'm only saying capitalize on opportunities that could happen. They're not guaranteed to happen, but they could happen. And if they happen and they hit big, then you should be taking advantage of them. My argument is that the world is more like that, okay? We call these things facts fat tails, if you like, all right? And what that means is that the downside is more likely to happen than you think it's gonna be because capitalism, I would argue, has taken place in a very lucky 100-year window, post-World War I. We have had a war, it's no doubt about it, we've had, a, we've had a world war, but broadly speaking, the kind of major impacts like pandemics and super volcanoes haven't really happened. It's had a pretty good run, all right? Um, and, that has a lot of profound and depressing implications that we can come to, but, but the, therefore businesses that have always been in that defensive mode were much more ready for this. So I put a Facebook post out in February, early March, saying to people, don't laugh at those guys stocking up on toilet paper, you should do it. And someone said to me, you're advocating panic buying. And I said, not really, you know, like, I've always got six months of toilet paper, right? So I have a defensive strategy, yeah. so I'm fine. I'm saying, you just should, okay? Um, because why wouldn't you? Don't. Because why wouldn't you? Because why wouldn't you? Right, exactly. Because it takes, I mean, genuinely, why wouldn't you? But, it, but here's why. Because it takes storage. Like, it's, they sit in my utility room. They're big. Mm. They're ungainly. No one wants that in their house because you have to go to Costco and it costs a lot of money. and You don't need that much toilet paper kicking around, people think. So there are reasons, but you have to overcome those reasons with a mindset that is always ready for these potential downsides. Mm. And we'll get into it, but there are lots of potential downsides and businesses need to be more, think more robustly and resiliently about them, but there is a cost to that. It's not toilet paper kicking around utility room, but it is actual money. But also those upsides are more likely than people think they are as well. And that's what I've spent most of my last 15 years talking about, which is 
these things, they are unlikely. Each one of them is unlikely. But if you have a business which is taking advantage, investing in them, you know, talk about the short-term failures, that is, some, some of them just aren't going to work. They're going to look like failures. But the ones that do have this tremendous, what we would call in, in poker, expectational value. It's just that it's only going to be realized and returned to you every now and again. Mm. Okay. So the and I, I guess that toilet roll is is uh, could could be uh, could be cash in any reserves that you built up pre a recession. This is the point. I think we've got a great metaphor going for the rest of this podcast between <laughs> the two. That toilet roll. Okay, here's what that toilet roll means, right? In 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 practical terms, and it's really 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 important, depressing, profound, uh, but I'm going to say important again. Concept, and it's this we are all much less rich than we think we are. That's what that toilet roll means. It means if you were buying all the toilet roll that you need to sustain your business through all the different potential downsides that can come at you, if you have that resilient a business, there is, there is a cost to it in all its different forms. It's money kicking around cash that is not generating a return. Uh, it's redundancy of, of um, possibly staff, possibly staff training, um, you know, to, to be resilient in those times. If all of us were living their lives um, like that, like I do, is the honest truth, um, we'd be much less rich than we are at the moment. You wouldn't, you know, and as individuals, we wouldn't have enough money for holidays and for things yeah, yeah. to kind of take for granted. Yeah. Uh, that's what that toilet roll represents, yes. Okay. But, but you you had a phenomenal uh, uh, success as a poker player, mm -hmm. and I, I've played it a very little bit and lost virtually every time. So it's uh, no talent at it at all. But that's all about probability, isn't it? It's all about probability, which is which is what this is. In fact, so so if I could just lead it from the last point, right? That's a kind of a depressing point, yeah. That we're all much yeah. less than we think we are. But th so this this philosophy, right, of going like that, yeah. Okay, like that but like that okay what it says is that that lost profitability that that downside can be completely offset by this upside mm -hmm. so when i talk to companies about you know increase your short-term failure rate because that's a manifestation of it i use the phrase negative metric these days what i i don't mean do it because it's motivational i don't mean do it because it's fun i don't mean like you know be innovative for the sake of it or any of those things i mean because that's where the returns are you, you will get greater returns on investment by doing that. So what we're doing as poker players is we can only make money as poker players by investing in a basket of opportunities, none of which, very, very, very few of which will win every single time. Yeah. And so you just become conditioned to that. You just become conditioned to living in this world of, of probabilities because that's how you try to make a certainty out of an uncertainty. Mm. And but for, for most of the general public, and I think, you know, a lot of the people in your network, Gordon, are not strangers to this because they're entrepreneurial. They have done this. In fact, when I talk to big corporates, you know, very often they'll say, oh, that, that won't fly here. That's not what we do. And there's two points to make. Number one, you do. You do do it every single day because money left under the mattress gets no return. So every corporation every day is putting money at risk. Yeah. And the second thing is that most of those corporations were built, were, were created by people in the early days who were precisely doing that. They were out there on the limb. They were investing in new ideas and propositions 
um, and had that entrepreneurial mindset. And what happens is companies get big enough that they've got so much to lose that they feel like they can't embrace that mindset anymore. And I think that's wrong, um, but definitely mistaken. Um, but, but, but as entrepreneurs, you'll have a lot of people who will make very good poker players because they feel relatively comfortable within what I call embracing that uncertainty. But here's a cast iron rule. So the human brain, actually it does need some uncertainty because if you think about the times when you achieve self-actualization, the times when you've done things that you're proud of that change gear, they were all a result of embracing uncertainty, doing something new, right, at the basic mm -hmm. level. But your brain does also need certainty. That's one of the reasons why it creates the myths of certainty. As I say, the, the idea that the money in our bank accounts is safe and that you know, the, our plans for 2020 were, are, are pretty, you know, pretty finalized now. Um, so it needs that certainty to exist, but so do your customers, right? Your clients all need certainty. Mm. And so what every organization is actually doing underneath the surface is we're all like insurance companies. The more uncertainty that you can absorb and sell as certainty, that's ultimately what most people are buying most of the time. Okay. And you said your brain needs, uh, your brain needs certainty. And yet we've got this very, very uncertain situation currently. So, so what, you know, what, what should a business leader of an SME, what should a business leader be doing in terms of, of, of feeding its brain with certainty when there isn't much out there? First of all, it's tough. Look, I mean, this is like, there is no sense in which I've got any silver bullets up my sleeve to make a period like this more enjoyable. Okay. I mean, you know, this, this is going to uh, challenge all of us and as, and as ready as I felt for it at the very beginning. And I really did, um, as we discussed in the very preamble before this call, like as a speaker at conferences, I have no idea when this is going to end. And right now, in fact, before all of this, I was selling my house. I'm selling my house. I'm going to buy a new house. Like, you know, what, what do I do? Do I buy a house where I am at the moment, where I live specifically to get around, do four conferences a week? Or shall I buy a much more beautiful house up in the northeast of England because there aren't going to be conferences for the next two years? Or, or if they are, they're all going to be virtual. It doesn't matter where I am anyway. So I'm dealing with this uncertainty just as much as anyone else. One of the things that's interesting about that that we need to do as leaders is we do need to try, each one of us, the further up you are up the, up the pyramid, the more you need to absorb that uncertainty. Because if you're managing teams of people, again, they don't like uncertainty either. Um, Tetlock creates a, um, a sort of a, a dual model or a model with two parts to it, a dichotomous model, which is hedgehogs and foxes. Okay. And the hedgehogs he defines as people who are very certain in their predictions. Okay. Um, but they're very wrong. So if you remember, on average, the experts that he studied over 20 years, 284 experts, 27,450 predictions, on average, Taken as a whole, they were no better than average, than, 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 uh, than throwing darts at a dartboard. But some people were better than others, right? And the people who were better than others were the foxes. And the thing that distinguished the foxes was that they had a lower probability of confidence in their guesses than these people, the hedgehogs, okay? Because hedgehogs are like, I don't know, a lot of politicians, experts on Fox News, confident, this is what it's going to be. Obviously, Joe Biden's going to win the election. Foxes, we don't really know exactly what it's going to be. Hard to say. So therefore, unlike hedgehogs, they got as much information as possible, were humble, were open-minded, always looking for clues, didn't assume that their model was right. Whereas these guys, well, of course, it's obvious it's going to be this. Yeah. Look at the last 30 years, right? So what's the ideal decision-making state? You need to be a fox 
but you need to project hedgehog confidence. Okay. No one wants someone in the room going, well, don't know, could be this, could be that. That's why these guys get on the news, okay, yeah. and girls. So um, that's what I think is a broad model for this, is that, again, we have to absorb that uncertainty, internalise it, but at some point we have to put out certainty because that's what people want. Yeah, I was speaking to somebody the other day who was talking about the whole trust piece. Right. And that actually maybe trust has shifted a little bit from the personalities that, are, that we've got behind in recent years. And now we're slightly more trustworthy of the statistic, statisticians and the people are giving us real data because there's so much uncertainty. We kind of cling on to data, which is, a, I suppose, a sh bit of a shift from a hedgehog to a... Uh, uh, to a fox in a way, the way, the way that you describe it. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I think that will be very interesting that you say that because I think, I think that is happening. I think in a way, you know, the two party leaders represent something of this. Um, in the Boris, you can see exactly why, you know, some people really like him. We're going to build, 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 jobs, 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 right? Yeah. And, and uh, Keir's on the other side asking these sort of thoughtful, quite probing questions quite atypical of the leader of the opposition but people are liking it yeah responding to it you know in a very short space of time he's overtaken boris in the polls yeah. for the third prime minister because people are realizing but you're absolutely right and i never really thought about it this way applying it to politics but people are realizing that clearly after this and brexit and trump and 2008 the world is more complex than that certainty than the certainty that we crave uh, promises that it is yeah no, it's interesting and I know you do a lot of work around positivity and proactiveness etc it's really it's really interesting um, working with our members just looking at the uh, uh, what we've got coming ahead it, it's been a bit of a grind for four months it's been fairly intense trying to eke out whatever business is out there some people obviously been furloughed and now we know we're gonna have months and months of really hard work to get a bit of a return and so that that challenges challenges the positivity a little bit for, for, for most of us. What do you, you know, with all your experience of working in that space, what, what are you telling business leaders that they should be thinking about to maintain that sort of positive? Well, I'm not talking to many business leaders. <laughs> it's one of the things. I mean, I'm, I'm having some natters like this, but business leaders don't want me in a room with them, obviously, at the moment. Um, I mean, so... Do I talk about positivity? I am classed as a motivational speaker. Um, and and the, some of the tools that I use do show why positivity is uh, such a good thing, right? Mm. Let, me, let me try and explain that um, hard without some of the, the, the slides that I would use. But if you think about the, 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 the calculated risk, okay, is a codification, it's a, formula, formula, a, a, yeah, a formulation of a calculation that we all make in the back of our minds mm. if we do anything, right? We will do anything as a function of our usually gut level, subconscious assessment of likelihood and probability, okay? Mm. So quite simply, what that means is that if you are pessimistic and you have a low assessment of probability of something working, right? If you, if you multiply the value, the success of this thing by a low probability, you come out with a low number or a lower number, yeah. you multiply that value by a high number, okay? And what that means is that optimists are more likely to do things and take action 
because although we don't do that calculation mentally using numbers on a page, as I always say, like when, you know, before numbers existed, the, the huntsman would go out, he would, he would go out and find more food when the tribe got bigger. Now that's actually long division, but the person doing that would never think about it as a, as a calculation. Okay? So in the same way that when we're making decisions, optimists who apportion a high probability likelihood of something happening, their gut calculation comes out with a higher value of this thing. And because what we're always doing as decision makers is looking for return on investment, mm. the value is higher, they're prepared to invest more. Okay, and hey, Presto, if they invest more, then they're more likely for it to succeed and get it done. Okay, yeah. I hope that makes sense without the calculations in front of me. When you have the calculations, it's a really beautiful thing because you really see the value and the benefit of optimism. Okay, yeah. but there, it has to come with a caveat, and this is why I don't consider myself to be a standard motivational speaker and why optimism and positivity is not necessarily the answer. Okay, because yeah. look, let's say you go to a casino as an optimist, right? you're going to lose money at roulette. Okay. Don't get me wrong. You can win on an even spin or evening, sometimes even a whole trip to Vegas. But the bottom line is obviously the house wins at the end of the day. The games yeah. are constructed in such a way, mathematically, there is a house edge. So it's no good being optimistic and positive playing roulette. If the situation has a negative expectation, you can be optimistic as much as you want. I mean, you know, personally, people that are watching this are going to disagree. But that's my view of Brexit is optimism is not going to get us through this. There is that value of optimism. Like I said, that it gets you up in the morning and you'll take more action. But mm. if we're engaging in a negative expectation proposition, which is what roulette is, then you can be as optimistic as you want. You're banging your head against a brick wall. You're going to make a long-term loss. Okay. So there is a reality out there, which is unaffected by your, your, um, your own uh, outlook. So two things. Number one, I think the way that you be optimistic and positive is at a, at a psychological metaphorical level is you can't just tell people to buck their ideas up. That's where stories and metaphor have their place in leadership because that's how a belief system is changed at a metaphorical level. Right. Um, you can, you can say to people all you want, uh, the, the journey to the airport is more dangerous than the flight itself. If they're scared of flying, they're scared of flying. The way that you'll rewire that is through metaphor, not through statistics. Okay? Mm. Mm. Um, but the second thing is that I think the answer to it is actually my view is not to be optimistic nor pessimistic, but to try and be realistic. And how do you how do you get that? It's quite a deep point. And again, I'm going to try and summarize it. You need to try and get to an accurate assessment of the situation. And when we play roulette, we know that our chances of winning, uh, we know there's a 2.7% house edge with a single zero, right? We can calculate that. In life, you're going to have optimists and you're going to have pessimists. And therefore, great decision making comes from assessments that are made by a team, right? That's where juries and yeah. rooms and all the rest of it come in is because we want the wisdom of all of these different disconnected but expert people. That's the wisdom of crowds. The madness of crowds is when they're not disconnected. That is when this person shouts fire, this person runs out of the room, right? Yeah. This person needs to go, mm, actually, I don't think there is a fire, right? For there to be a discussion about it. That's a bad example. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but but um, that's what I think we really need. Their optimism has its place. But I think what's important in this terrain, there will be things that are bad ideas to engage in with an optimistic outlook. And so we need to take different views of 
assessments and probabilities and that's where the other thing that I was trying to advocate that people do when I talk to your team is to talk probabilistically nothing is definitely going to succeed nothing is definitely going to fail in December you didn't know none of us knew that COVID was going to happen but actually everything only had a probability so if people can engage with each other at that level probabilistically why do you think it's likely why do you think it's unlikely that's where the best conversations can come so accurate accurate assessment coupled with optimism yeah, well, okay, well, here, here's where I agree with you. So, like, once you've decided, okay, we're going to do this, the only way then to approach the action is with optimism. So I'm going to cleverly fuse this to the point I made earlier on before about the, about the hedgehogs and foxes, okay? Mm. In the boardroom, you need to have a realistic conversation, okay? But after you emerge from the boardroom, I call it the internal-external model, right? Whether it's a boardroom or your own head, in your head you need to have an upside downside good old think about it but once you've decided to say we're going to do this then the only the only reasonable way of doing it is optimistically and positively yeah once you yeah. come out of the boardroom then yeah. people want this hedgehog certainty the only way of expressing it is with that kind of certainty and that's where boris is your more classical leader because that is ultimately what most people are going to crave but maybe a lot of people you know gravitating towards kia's caution at the moment but mm. boris still characterizes uh, there's a lot of sense to it if you're going to build 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 and create job jobs jobs you may as well just say that and go for it hell for leather mm. but it's more convincing with some of that accurate assessment and the detail that He's maybe not, not always coming up with you. Right, exactly. It's more convincing to feel that there's been a cabinet level discussion behind it that's been thoughtful and inquisitive and inquiring and humble and open-minded and coming to it from the perspective of, well, we don't know this, so let's throw these ideas around. And that's maybe what people are doubting, you know, to make this contemporary and topical um, of perhaps this cabinet at the moment. Yeah. And one question. Um, I'm not quite sure where this is coming from. I've 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 always understood that um, if if you're involved in a, in a relationship with a client or whatever, and and you have a positive experience that is affecting you emotionally, quite often your decision making will be emotionally led, which you will then justify rationally afterwards. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's it's the old thing. You know, we decide on emotion and then justify with reason. I yeah. mean. I you know, as someone who's looking at houses at the moment, I can, I can confirm that, you know, I've, I'm just an idiot when it comes to looking at houses. I will literally go through right moving, I don't like that sofa and dismiss the property. <laughs> That's insane and I know it's insane, but I know I'm being completely emotional. Um, and conversely, I'll see a house with an absolutely brilliant kitchen and then come up with five reasons why that yeah. house doesn't make sense to buy. So even when you know you're doing it, well, that comes back to my point about probabilities is that, that you know, emotion does trump reason mm. well i think i think two things there but should it should it no 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 i don't think no not if you want to be good decision makers so listen there is a myth there's this myth that to be good decision makers we shouldn't be emotional that is not true okay it is good that losses in poker hurt some right if they don't hurt some that's what leads to recklessness cavalier behavior you know gambling it's yeah. good that losses it's good you know there's no doubt about it is there that the, the, the great competitive teams and football managers hate losing mm. all right it's good mm. that it hurts because it forces you to rethink and and consider why have i lost there all right yeah. if you don't mind or care then you're not going to go through that process it is good that the triumphs and victories um 
are pleasurable. What's bad is when, as we've just discussed, the, the, the pain of losing is so extreme that it starts to outweigh the pain of, of, of the, the joy of winning. That is that the emotions are asymmetric. So again, getting a bit technical, when uh, the way that we formalize that in behavioral economics is we talk about something called utility curves, which is just a way of measuring how much utility or pleasure or satisfaction you get from upsides and downsides. Mm. And what you want is a straight utility curve. You don't want no utility curve, right? With no emotion, you want a straight utility curve. So it's not, it's not bending and asymmetric and disproportionate, okay? It doesn't represent diminishing or accelerating marginal gains. A bit technical. Uh, so emotion is good. There's a, there's a case in um, a book by Antonio Damasio of um, a therapist who's treating someone whose capacity for emotion has been removed and he suggests a time for their next appointment and it takes him 35 minutes looking through his diary all the different days because he has no emotions about them, right? Yeah. Without emotions, you can't make decisions at all, okay? But I've already made the point. It's good that your emotions are proportionate and not extreme in either direction so that you can be emotional and human but slightly step back and, and cool and rationing. But then there's all sorts of other things, like, for example, time preference. Time preference is fascinating. We all have it. You know, we all would rather our upsides came now, yeah, and that the downsides were delayed. So that's why people smoke, because they get the pleasure immediately, and cancer's not for another 30 years. It's why we get into debt, because, you know, we buy the thing on the card immediately, and the, the, we don't think about the, the, the debt we're going to get into. So... You know, that's, that's another thing that we need to be step back rational about. There's so many biases that are preventing us from making good decisions, which some people call rational decisions. I prefer to use the word efficient. Okay. When we're running, because let me just say this point, a number of those biases and emotions are not bad things per se. So for example, if you had a single parent on benefits with 12,000 pounds worth of debt, right? And Richard Branson playing deal or no deal, they'd make different decisions. Yeah. She'd take 20,000, even though the quarter of a million box is out there because so is the penny, right? Yeah. And he wouldn't. Yeah. And you can't say whether one of them is right or wrong, can you? Because she's doing the right decision for her life at that point in time. And so is he, because it's just the sheer hell of playing the game, right? So the reason why that's interesting is because it makes this division between business and personal decisions is because in business, there is a rash, there is a, no, just use the phrase, but there is an efficient decision. There is the right decision to maximize your long-term returns. Mm. And as much as possible, that's what we should be doing in business. Where, where people are owner managers or where the, where the personal life comes into the business, it's completely fine, then this thing is gonna creep in. But it's important as decision makers to try and make the most efficient decision because that for me is the holy grail is just to maximize returns on resources and investment continually. Mm. The person who does that over the long run is the person who goes through the finishing line first. And am I, have I also understanding um, that to make the better decisions, you're definitely better off involving other people? Yes, for that, for that same reason, but because, okay, so uh, think back, I don't have the, the tools here to show it, but remember that calculation that I showed you on the day? Yeah. You had, uh, in that particular case, I said there was a 25% chance of making $4,000, right? That's a long-term upside of 1,000, which was 25% of 4,000. 75% chance you're gonna lose your $400 investment in the poker pot. Downside therefore of 300, which is this, these two added, uh, sort of multiplied together. That, on that occasion, gave you an overall expectation of 700, 1,000 minus, yeah. Yeah. okay. So people say, is poker a game of maths or psychology? 
for which is, is investing, is decision-making a, a maths or psychological thing. The point is both, right? That calculation holds true. And the person that can do that calculation fast and accurately and actually in a more detailed way, not just with two potential outcomes, but 32, yeah. they have a massive edge, all right? But the probability, the 75 and the 25%, that's the product of the sexy part of poker, which is reading your opponent, right? That's the part of the sexy part of business, which is, you know, I reckon if we do this, then this will happen. No one's thought of that idea. Mm. Step back from that, which is creativity, which is which is coming up with new alternatives yeah. that other people don't consider, which in poker is very difficult because your, your options are usually very few. Okay. That's the part where group decision-making is preferable because the assessment of that probability, which is what we call judgment, yeah. that is subjective. So the more different opinions and different members and different outlooks, you want an optimist, you want a pessimist, you want some realistic people, you want um, you want actually some, some people with time preference and some people without, you want a whole team of people with different outlooks on life to try and, uh, to try and, to try and find that accurate probability. Okay. And one final question, Casper. Um, you went to Cambridge and you studied anthropology, got my research, um, which uh, I know nothing about, but it, that's the study of human right. behavior. <laughs> it is, yeah. I, did, I actually went to study economics and then I changed to anthropology okay. because what I really went to Cambridge to do was to do the theatre and economics was a lot of work. <laughs> yeah, anthropology is broadly the study of human behaviors, yeah. So nothing to do with anthropology. I was just quite interested in your sort of view about how we might sort of evolve as leaders, having gone through what, we've, what we're going through currently. And uh, I know anthropology is about the past and the present, but I just wondered if you had any sort of... Uh, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm going to be honest with you. I've been doing this job 15 years and no one has ever asked me to relate <laughs> a problem to anthropology before. And, and I'm very glad of that. I'm very glad of that because I did not study anthropology. <laughs> um, so I think I think the best answer I can give to that, honestly, is to is to come back to the beginning of this is this whole uh, discussion, right? Which is which is this? Okay, the way that we evolve as leaders is to understand that this, okay, or this, in fact, is an illusion created by our brains which creates certainty. Okay. Yeah. And the reason why it's an illusion that's quite compelling and will hold for a long time is because these things these events right they're infrequent mm. and so you can go for a long time without encountering them and therefore the illusion holds does that make sense yeah. it's most likely to happen will obviously happen most of the time and therefore you'll be right most often but if the thing that is unlikely either on the downside or the upside is unlikely but profound when it hits when it affects you then it's significant because mm -hmm. a, because a low likelihood of a huge event is still, according to that calculation, a big thing. So I think the way that we evolve as leaders is to understand. Do you play golf? I do, yeah. Right, yeah. I play golf. Do you ever look at your card and say, "If I hadn't gone into the bunker on the 14th, I'd have had a, an 86." Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's what you think, and you yeah. go, "Bloody bunker!" If I hadn't gone in the bunker, and you did in your brain, you discount the bunker. Right, yeah. and actually you had an 86. Now you had a 94 right, or a 92 or whatever it is because you went in the bunker and then you took three to get out and you were off the green and you had a nine, right? Yeah. But in your mind, the nine was just an aberration. It doesn't really count. 
okay yeah. and that's what we do with these events okay 2008 covid we go it doesn't really count right because it all went mental for a bit yeah. and what i'm trying to say is the mental things are normal they're just normal they're gonna happen just like you're gonna go in bunkers okay and so if you want to run your company and not just be profitable for five years or ten years but for 40 years okay and in corporation terms 400 years or 4,000 years if we want to have that that kind of sustainability and longevity then you have to think like that and that means in the first place depressingly embracing that and that will cost money but in the second place what I've been talking about for 15 years has not been just some sort of fun endeavor to keep risk takers in your company you know engaged it's been to understand that there are upsides potentially out there and you need strategies that will capitalize on them when they happen and that means being prepared literally to fail more often in the short term because they're unlikely but yeah. when they hit they hit big yeah casper absolutely loved it uh, i loved it when you uh, came to the swimming pool in the nightclub in covent garden and uh, it's just fascinating in the current environment to to hear your thoughts again about what we might all be doing a little bit differently and i, and I hope you're um so thank you very much and i hope your house buying goes well thank you and i hope um the world unlocks so you can get out and work your magic um as, as soon as possible but uh, on behalf of everyone at the recruitment network thank you very much it's been absolutely fantastic thanks folks cheers bye-bye we will see you again great